Beloved congregation of the Lord, shall we read again in Revelation chapter 12 and the 11th verse. Revelation 12 and verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Well, congregation, uh, when we think about Reformed theology, the doctrines that are laid out in the Reformed confessions and that are found among Reformed theologians and are confessed by Reformed believers, one of the great attractions to it is that it does not belong to any one nationality or, or cultural background. But rather, if you would look throughout the centuries and you would consider the, the great story of the Christian church, in fact, people come to these very same convictions from the scripture from generation to generation as they are led by the Spirit of God. Indeed, we don't say that all Reformed Christians agree about everything, but in the, the main, when we think about the doctrines of grace, when we consider the wonderful truths of covenant theology, when we consider the crown rights of King Jesus over all of life, that indeed these are things that are common to every generation of Reformed Christians. And you won't find uh, people speaking a different language from one generation to the next. And yet at the same time, we, we can recognize that there have been changes in development among Reformed theologians if you would compare the early Reformers to theologians today. And perhaps one of the more conspicuous examples would be how it is that we go about interpreting the book of Revelation. You see, Revelation, as you know, is a rather challenging book to understand. If you would just pick it up and read through it, uh, you're liable to maybe be a bit confused. How is it that uh, this is to instruct me? How is it it's to impact my life? And the reason for that is that virtually every part of, of Revelation, it is assuming a very deep knowledge of the whole teaching of the Bible. There are allusions and references to virtually every other part of the Bible, especially the prophets of the Old Testament, which may be... We don't always study with the carefulness that, that we need to. And so there's different interpretations of this. So uh, just to briefly summarize, and this might be a little bit uh, dull as an introduction, but I think it's important for us to think through how it is that Reformed churches today, particularly in, uh, in Canada, generally come to this book of Revelation as opposed to how the early Reformers did. So today, the most common way that people come to the book of Revelation among uh, the Reformed churches would be under an idealist means of interpretation. So what does that mean? Well, for an idealist who comes to the book of Revelation, what they are, are doing is they would read all of these different prophecies with all of their vivid, um, figurative language, and what they would do is seek to discern how it is that we can derive spiritual principles that teach us about 
every single age of the Christian church, from the beginning of um, the New Testament and the coming of Christ, all the way to the second coming of Christ. And so an idealist would say, it doesn't so much matter what uh, era that you are living in, the book of Revelation has a, a message that's directly applicable to your time, and that's the main, the main point of the book, to teach you about the life of faith and repentance in a world of conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. So this is the idealist interpretation. In contrast, if you would read the early reformers and the Puritans, in their uh, commentaries on Revelation. So you could think, for example, of Matthew Henry's commentary or Matthew Poole's commentary or uh, the work of a theologian like uh, Francis Turretin. They are not idealists. They are historicists. What is an historicist? Well, this is referring to a way of coming to these prophecies which says that every single prediction is going to be fulfilled at a particular time in the church's history. So a historicist would say, we come to the book of Revelation, and the entire saga is playing out, and every single part of it is going to be fulfilled at a particular time, between the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And so if you would, uh, you would read those commentaries, if you're interested in history... Um, those early commentaries are quite exciting because the reformers, our fathers, really had a, a belief that they could come to definite conclusions about how to understand the times in which we live by orienting themselves to these prophecies. Now, of course, I think maybe one of the reasons this way of prophecy has fallen into disuse is that, as you can maybe appreciate, the prophecies of Revelation are very complicated. And so even if you would all come to the same principle that historicism is true, you're going to apply the prophecies in slightly different ways. You're going to say, well, I think maybe this was fulfilled in that era. And other historicists might say, well, I think when, when you consider this historical event, it fits a bit closer. And so it winds up being that you, you generally have uh, these long discussions about history, which, which aren't that spiritually edifying to most people. And this would enter in if you would read commentaries from different times about this 12th chapter of Revelation. So consider there's this general story, and in the main, they'll be agreed. There is this uh, picture of a woman who's in childbirth, and there'd be a, an agreement. Well, this is obviously referring to the Christian church, but what do we make of, for example, the child that is born to the church or the heavenly Jerusalem in this uh, story pictured as a woman. Well, if you read verse 5, you, you see it, it does say something about this child. It says in verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So there you would, uh, you would have a verse... And uh, for an idealist, so where most Reformed people are today, this would be a verse where it's, uh, it's a very straightforward interpretation. Who is the child that um, 
reigns over the nations with a rod of iron. Well, that's the Lord Jesus. What is this referring to? The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, of course, has a, a very direct application to every time in which we live. The incarnation of Christ is suitable to be preached on at any time, in any place. And yet the, the fathers uh, of the Reformed Church, they would generally disagree. They would say, well, this isn't so much John, the apostle, reflecting on what had already happened in the past, the incarnation of Christ. Rather, this is looking ahead to a future. It's a prophecy. And so what was it that he was predicting? Well, it's interesting. The, the oldest uh, Reformed commentators, they would say, in line with historicism, this is referring to the manifestation of Christ's kingdom among uh, true believers in history, especially in the early days of the church, leading up to the, the falling away of, of the purity of apostolic doctrine as the, the woman or the church is led away into the wilderness of, of obscurity. And so it's interesting if you compare verse uh, um, Five with verse 17, there is this indication that maybe our fathers were onto something because it says in verse 17, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Interesting, referring to the seed of the, of the church or the new Jerusalem, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there, in line with the uh, the historicist interpretation, it's more so speaking there about not Christ himself as the seed of the church, but rather all those in union with Jesus Christ by faith. Indeed, we would say the mystical body of Christ. You could think, for example, of what it was that Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? He said, why do you persecute me? Sometimes um, the, the church or elect believers, they can be referred to as, uh, as Christ. And I think when you compare verses 5 to seven and 17, that's kind of what we see here. But be that as it may, I think regardless of, of which side that you take, and I do lean towards the historicist interpretation myself, there is a very direct application of these prophecies to our own day because both schools of thought would say that this is speaking directly to our own time as the church that is scattered and tiny and and obscured from the limelight of history the eye of god is yet upon us where we live in times of spiritual warfare and this great fearful red dragon with its many heads and horns and crowns it represents Satan and his kingdom upon the earth, seeking to devour and to destroy the people of God. Indeed, those which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so this afternoon hour, I'd like to reflect upon the um, words that are found in verse 11, where it describes the true people of God living in times of spiritual warfare with the dragon. And this is what it says in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. 
So three things, three things for how to overcome the dragon, how to overcome the dragon. First, the blood. Second, the word. Third, courage. The blood, the word, and courage. We might say, well, is this really so relevant for us today? And, and we have but to ask the question, and, and it's already answered for us. It's, it's very clear that the kingdom of Satan is peculiarly manifested in our own day. Yes, we do, we do see a, um, a real crisis of the nations. We, we can't deny it. But we have to also say that Satan is not um, absent from how it is that our nations have dealt with the challenges of the past years. And in particular, the utter disregarding of our society, of the consciences of people as image bearers of God, and of the laws of the Bible, particularly as they concern the crown rights of Jesus Christ over the church. These are, are not things of which the devil is absent from, but his, his fangs and claws and scales, they, they are intimately involved with it. It is, it is indeed an attack upon the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And likewise, we, we have to recognize that not only... Um, the convulsions that have taken place in recent years across all nations of the world, but as well, we must also recognize that what has happened in our nation bears some emphasis in these recent weeks. And obviously we spent some time on it, but we, we, we must emphasize it again. Our nation, through its representatives, has shaken its fist at the honor of God. And we have said that uh, through our representatives that the teaching of the Bible as it concerns human sexuality is myth. And we have said that those who would stand upon biblical principles of calling those in sexual sin to repentance, that those people are guilty of a crime that can be punished up to five years in jail. Now, we, uh, obviously, this is a, a travesty of justice. But we also need to see that all these things that are taking place in the political realm, they're not abstracted from the spiritual realm, and especially from that which is taking place in the churches. Can we really say that such judgments could be coming upon our land and upon the churches if God was not displeased with his people, if there was not a chastening or indeed generations of, of spiritual laziness, for generations of prayerlessness, of, of a lack of devotion unto him. Indeed, the spiritual condition of the churches of Canada, we cannot say it is good. We cannot say that the Lord is, is pleased with us if such things would be happening, where the nation would be giving over to the devil in such dramatic ways. So... We as churches, we need to consider how is, how is it that these things have, have come upon us? What is it about the churches that requires repentance? In light of these things, we must come back to the very foundation about what it is to be a Christian in these days of such spiritual conflict. 
how can we wage a good warfare against the devil and his kingdom? Well, the first thing that is laid before us here in verse 11 concerns the blood. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The blood. Here we have set before us one of the most basic truths of what it is to be a Christian. They are a people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because it is a basic truth, and one often heard from this pulpit, are we not in great danger of not truly hearing it? Is it not those things which we hear most often that we are likely to to tune out? And sometimes maybe if we would really hear this for the first time as as though it were, were truly hitting us with all the force of its truth, ought we not to imagine what this would mean to someone who had no understanding whatsoever of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So this past week I was invited by a Baptist brother who often goes out to a, a nearby mosque and as the Muslims are leaving their worship on the on the Friday, he, he seeks to, to speak to them and, and engage with them about the truth of the gospel. And so I was going out with this brother, and we engaged in a lengthy conversation with some of these, uh, these Muslim uh, young men. And it's interesting, very different than sharing the gospel with a Canadian. You share the gospel with um, a, uh, someone who's been in this country a long time and has absorbed the, the kind of culture of Canada, and there's really no understanding of reverence for the divine being, no understanding of the holiness of God. Not so, really, with a Muslim. They have some understanding of of God's righteousness, his hatred against lawbreakers, and the fact that he cannot overlook sin. And and you say these things from the Bible, and they say, yes, yes, we believe that too. And then you shift gears and say, well, I'd like to talk about the mercy of this God. And they say, oh, yes, yes. God will surely be merciful to those who repent of their sin. Yes, yes. His, his nature is to be merciful. He delights in mercy. Yes, yes. But then you would sit back and, you would, and we would say to these, these young men, well, how is it that you put these things together? How can you really believe in a just God who is merciful? If he was merciful to sinners, how could he therefore be just? Or flip it around. You believe in a merciful God. You believe in, in, in one who is merciful, and yet if he would, if he would, uh, if that is all that he is, how does that, how does that square with all these revelations about his, his justice? How is it that all these things go together? And, it, and in their case, it just winds up being a hodgepodge. In their case, they can't explain why it is that they think they'll go to heaven at all. So you, you come back to this basic thing, the reality of the atonement. And we explain this to these uh, Muslim young men, and we explain to them, don't you see, throughout all the history of this world, it's not been God trying to get this basic doctrine through to an ungodly race. Think of all those sacrifices, the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs. And there you have the priest laying their hand upon a sinner and laying their hand upon this animal substitute. And out comes the knife and killing that substitute, laying the body on the altar, putting it up into flame. What is the reality there? That if there would be 
forgiveness, if there would be mercy, then this just and righteous God demands satisfaction, demands atonement, a just penalty for all sin. And of course, it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the true, by the true atonement, by the true sacrifice, by what is spoken of here. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the lamb. You think of what John the Baptist, that last great prophet of the old covenant said as he was baptizing those people in the Jordan River. And he saw Jesus Christ approaching. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is what he recognized about this glorious Messiah. That he is the lamb. He is the true substitute. He came into this world and he took on true humanity in order to die the death that we deserve. You consider that. Consider how graphically it's put here. It doesn't just say the death of Christ. It does not just say the cross of Christ. It says the blood. Think of that. The blood of Christ. All those centuries ago, if you would have been there, there on the hill of Golgotha, you would have seen a man literally nailed to that tree. You would have seen a literal soldier taking out a great spear and thrusting it through that man's side. And out comes the blood in the water, literal blood. This man gives up the ghost and suffers the curse is due towards sinners. And you think of that. You think of that blood. Yeah, on one level you could say it's human blood. Christ is a true man. And, and all blood on one level, it is, it is just that which is going through your veins and that which is bringing oxygen and, and has a physical uh, a pr- a purpose to it. And yet where it is spoken of here is representing the life. It says in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. It it represents one who has life. And this life was spent. It was given up. Christ died in the place of sinners. In the place of his sinful people. Christ literally died. And so we see a great difference between the saving faith of Christ's elect and those who just have a notional faith, those who have a very general faith, those who, who have the kind of faith that cannot deliver your soul. A faith that saves goes out to the blood. It goes out to the death of Christ and what he has done for us. If you... We get a visit from uh, from one of the elders, and they would would speak to you about spiritual things, and they would say, "Okay, you're you're coming to this church. You've been here for many years, and and just are you are you ready? Are you ready to meet your Maker? Are you sure you're ready? What could you say?" It's like, well, you know, I have been coming to the church. I have been, been doing this. I've been doing that. I've been trying to pray. I've been been trying to repent, and these things and that things, but. But then there comes the question, is that really enough? At the end of the day, are we much different than those Muslims that I met this week? How is it that you can be reconciled unto a holy God? How is it that you will face him on that day? 
is it clothed in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, where he takes your sin, he takes your guilt, he gives you his righteousness and purchases for you all the blessings of eternal life. Is that really what you are resting in today? The blood, the blood of the Lamb. If that is at your foundation, if that is at your core, that you are one who is resting in the blood of Jesus Christ. And what a sure foundation that is for the spiritual battles in which we face. If your Christianity is just cultural, being part of a particular group, having particular traditions, having particular ideas, having particular customs, being part of a particular family, And how can that withstand the kind of trials that we are likely to face in the coming years, which our children and grandchildren are likely to face? But, but if your soul knows of a truth that the eternal love of God rests upon you for Christ died for you, and that you, it is as though you had fulfilled all righteousness. And as though you had never committed a single sin. That indeed Christ purchased heaven for you with his precious blood. If that is at the core of who you are. If that is the sure foundation. Then all, all of the attacks of the evil one. All of his devices. All of the wrath of this world that would be leveled against you. It cannot shake you, for your life is built upon that solid rock, that solid foundation of Christ and him crucified. That is what we need in the first place. It says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Notice this as well. And by the word of their testimony, not only through the blood, also through the Word, through the word, and and particularly through the blood of their testimony. These are people who testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, the Greek work has the as the sense of martyr, right? Because the most basic idea of a martyr is one who gives a testimony, even. As it says in there in verse 17, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so it is. It's not merely the case that these are people purchased by the blood of Christ, but this has the result of a transformed life. That indeed, the stamp of Jesus Christ is impressed upon their lives. You bring Christians together, and the thing that they long to speak of is the one who purchased them with their blood, with his blood. And you give Christians free time, and, and what is it they want to do? Well, they want to do his will. They want to serve him. They want to think of him. They want to pray to him. They want to speak of him. They want to witness for him. Yes, through their words, but also through their actions, through their conduct and desire to give a good testimony unto the world. And this is something that has generated discussion in the, in the churches, especially in recent years. What ultimately does it look like to give a good testimony, to be a good witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it the person who is greatly celebrated and loved by the world? 
Is it the case that one who is really giving a good testimony for Jesus Christ, that they will receive the applause of the worldlings who don't know anything of the scriptures? For those who are separated from the the life-giving power of the Spirit, who do not love or worship the true God, they look at the conduct of a Christian and say, there is a is an upstanding person. There is someone we want to celebrate and, con- and commend. And No. No, we have but to say it, and it's not so. We must never define what is a good witness according to whether it receives the approval and acclaim of the world. You know that in this book of Revelation, in this chapter, throughout all the chapters, really throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament, what you do find is that those people who are the best witnesses receive the most rejection from this unbelieving world. That there is this opposition, this antithesis, this conflict, that indeed Jesus Christ said, you are either with me or you are against me. And so if you would live a godly and holy life, if you would be a true witness, do not be surprised if the world does not understand. Do not be surprised if they are offended, if they are angry, if even the hate and wrath of the dragon is leveled against you. It's only what this prophecy had told us. It's not by the standard of the world that we appeal to, but the standard of the word. The word. Notice how it's put there in, in verse 11. They overcame by the word of their testimony. That indeed the things that they uttered were in conformity to the Holy Scriptures. The truths of the Bible. The things that were given to them by inspiration of God. Preserved by his miraculous care throughout the ages, this word of the true and living God, which is suitable for both the birth of faith in the soul, as well as the nourishing of that faith, as well as the instruction in true righteousness, holiness, and godliness by the work of the Spirit in the soul. This is indeed the word of life unto us. And it is this that is the standard of whether we are a good witness. It is this which characterizes our speech and our conduct if indeed we are true Christians. Even if you think about the standard of love that the world has as opposed to the standard of love which is in the Bible, do you not see that there is a very great difference between these two things? For one who is of the world, they would say, well, true love is when you act in such a way that makes people happy with you that makes people pleasant towards you, that makes people have nice feelings concerning you. But how utterly different is the standard of Scripture? The standard of Scripture is that true love desires the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. It desires the betterment of the souls and well-being of others, whether or not that leads to their approval and celebration of us. The true standard of love is defined only by the Bible and by nothing else. And so if we would look at our lives and say, are we, are we such a people as this? And are we actually in the fight? We must ask the question, is our lives in conformity 
with the chapters and the verses and the words and the specific instructions and doctrines which are preserved for our edification and our salvation. That is the question that we must ask, and, and we must ask this question as well. When we do have the truth, what it is that our hearts desire to do with it? You know, I think about one theologian who kind of put it this way, if all you desire is to be saved and sanctified and safe, then the Lord's battle has no need of thee. The idea there is that for those who are pictured here, it is the honor of their king and the great war that is waging around us. They to desire that his kingdom would be established and preserved, that indeed his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it is. That must be our desire. That must be what we would lay hold of. And that is what we must practice. So we see that in the second place. Not only through the blood and through the word, but also this as well. Courage. Courage. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death striking thing that they did not love their own lives. It reminds me of those words spoken by the Lord Jesus himself. He said, if any man does not hate their father and their mother and their children and even their own life, they are not worthy to be called my disciple. That is the, the bold and stark truth of it, isn't it? For the true child of God, it is love and devotion unto Jesus Christ which characterizes their walk of life. It is indeed of a greater value than anything. And isn't it the case that it's in times of sifting, times where the Lord is, is really giving us over to hard times and trials. Is that not the, the time when all of the idols of our heart become manifested. And indeed those things that we are really cleaving on to, that we really have a hard time letting go of, the Lord exposes those in a particular way. And sometimes he puts his finger on the very last thing that you would desire to, to give up. And he says, no, this is the one that must go. And that can be any, anything. It can be anything in your life that if you're occupied with it, if you're mulling over it all the time, if this is really what you are living for, then it has taken the place of what your devotion should be, and that is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, your very safety, your very health, indeed, your very life itself is not more valuable and the honor of Jesus Christ. Because you and me and all of us, all of our lives are expendable. We are expendable. We don't live for ourselves. We live for another. We live for the one who we belong to. And that is what we see here. They love not their lives unto the death. 
Now contemplate that for a moment. We don't know exactly what the future brings, but let me tell you something. If your eyes are open and you see the speed and rapidity with which evil is abounding and abounding in our society, the level of power that the godless have, the level of disdain for basic human decency, let alone the sacred and the, and the holy. And we cannot but realize that it could be even within the, the time period of those who are yet within the sound of my voice where you may be asked to give up even your very life for the cause of Jesus Christ. And the question comes at that time, what are the resources with which you will make that decision? At that time, when your very life is held before you and you must ask the question, do do you so hate your very life in comparison to your love of Christ that you would be willing to give that up? And will you be able to do it? For myself, I look at myself and how easily sometimes I'm falling into temptations, how easily I'm going back to this or that, and how, how hard it is sometimes to progress in holiness. And, and I have to say, I, I look at myself and I can't even fathom how I would conduct myself if such a case were before me, looking at myself. But then I look unto this one, I look unto this one who purchased me with his blood, this one who has renewed me with his spirit, this one who has given unto me the everlasting gospel, this one who is enthroned in majesty on high, who rules over the nations with a rod of iron, this one who possesses all dominion and authority and power, the King Emmanuel himself, God with us. And will you look at him with me now. Will you gaze upon the glory of Christ in his majesty and his grace and love and tell me that in the hour of testing he will let you down, believer. Tell me that you will look unto Jesus Christ and plead for the strength to give up your life and tell me that he will let you down. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. The reason that his people are faithful unto death and have been from generation unto generation when the hour of testing really comes is not because they are superheroes, but rather that the supernatural grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for them in that hour. I tell you, his grace will still hold you firm. If you would apply unto that glorious Christ, the endless reservoirs of power are, are not to be, be measured. I think about what Paul said in, in 1 Timothy, I believe. God has not given unto us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. God is able to give what we of ourselves could never muster up in our own strength with our own abilities. So that is where I would leave you today, believer. I don't know what the future will bring, but I do know this. 
that for all those who name the Jesus Christ, who name the name of Jesus Christ, there will be tribulations, there will be trials, there will be heartache, there will be attacks of the evil one. And if we would triumph and indeed be more than conquerors, it is through these things laid before us, the blood and the word and a divine courage that comes from the supernatural grace of Jesus Christ. Let us in this way work, up a, work out our salvation with fear and trembling.